Section 20 of 11 Possible Cases by Various. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason in Panama. 11 Possible Cases by Various. A Tragedy of High Explosives by Brainerd Gardner Smith. Chapter 4. May 21. I am sitting alone in the cabin writing. It is very late. I hear the steps of the mate as he paces the deck. The calm still holds us in its fearful clasp. Great God! What is to be the end of it all? There has been a break in the monotony of our existence today. Uncle John got into a hot discussion with Captain Raymond at the dinner table about the efficacy of the wonderful explosive compound. The captain seemed doubtful. Uncle John was for the instant angry. I'll show you then, he said, and he rushed into the cabin where his boxes are stored and came out shortly with two tin cans, each holding something less than a pint. He unscrewed the top of one, disclosing a brownish powder. Take care, said the captain, who seemed needlessly cautious and almost fearful. Why, I thought you said it was useless, said Uncle John with a laugh, and yet you are afraid of it look here he lighted a match and held it close to the powder a dark smoke arose that instantly extinguished the little flame and floated off leaving a queer smell behind that was all perfectly harmless captain continued uncle who had now recovered his usual good nature perfectly harmless unless you wet it then look out the cook had made a sort of dumpling for dinner and a great lot of it remained Uncle John took a mess of this dough, for it was little else, squeezed it until it was quite dry, and molded it into a ball. Come with me, he said, and Arthur, bring a plate of that dough with you. He took the cans, and we followed him to the deck. There he carefully covered the ball of dough with the powder, and, going to the rail, threw it as far as he could out over the placid sea. As the ball struck the water, there was a loud explosion, and the spray was thrown high into the air. The crew, who had been hanging over the port rail forward, turned and rushed over to see what was up. Uncle John made another ball and threw it with like result. "'Oh, holy torpeter!' growled one of the men, and they turned back to their former places. Uncle John, now evidently anxious to give his thorough proof of the value of his compound, was for throwing more balls when the boatswain, rolling aft, touched his hat and said to the captain, please sir there's a big shark as has showed his fin off the port bow and if so be that the doctor'll wait a bit with his torpeters we'll show him some fun a-catchin of it all right bosun said the captain and we all went over to the port rail there he is said the captain pointing to a sharp black thing that rising just above the water was cutting quietly through it that is his fin and there's a big shark under it or i'm much mistaken the sailors had got a large hook and had baited it with a piece of salt beef and made it fast to a stout line with a chain that the fish couldn't bite off this tempting morsel was flung overboard and as it fell with a splash into the water we saw the great fin cut toward it and then disappear the next instant there was a great tug at the rope hurrah we've got him yelled the boatswain walk away with him now me hearties a dozen sailors had manned the rope 
and now started to drag the big fish out of the water. There was a tremendous pull, a great splashing, and then the men tumbled in a heap on the dock, and the hook was jerked sharply over the rail. Cuss the luck, growled the boatswain. The hook didn't hold. The taste of salt beef evidently suited the shark, for he was soon right alongside, cruising back and forth, looking for more. We could see him distinctly, and a tremendous fellow he was. Again the men baited the hook and dropped it overboard. We saw the big fish dart forward, turn on his side, and grab the bait with a sharp snap of his terrible jaws. Again the hook would not catch, and the shark was waiting for more beef. The men were about to make a third attempt when Uncle John started. "'Wait a bit, men,' he said. "'I've got a hook that will hold. Give me a piece of the meat.' The men fell back and looked eagerly. The cook handed up a big chunk of meat. "'Wipe it as dry as you can,' said Uncle, "'and tie it firmly to the rope.' When this was done, he sprinkled the powder from the can carefully over the meat. Then he carried it cautiously to the rail. The shark was cruising back and forth. Uncle lowered the meat slowly into the water, right in front of the monster. He saw the bait and darted at it, and then there was a tremendous report, and the spray flew into our faces as we leaned over the rail. The next moment we saw the big fish floating motionless on the water. "'Blessed if he hasn't blowed his head clean off,' said the boatswain. It was so. That terrible compound of Uncle John's had needed only the impact of the shark's teeth to explode it with deadly effect. Uncle looked perfectly happy. The effect on Helen was strange. For the first time since she had been with us, she seemed to be angry. I think you are very cruel, she said to Uncle John, to kill that beautiful shark. He had not harmed you. I shall not love you any more. As she said this, she stepped to my side and grasped my hand, as though she feared Uncle and wanted my protection. The men heard her words, and the effect was marked. They had been in high good humor over the death of the shark, the sailor's most dreaded enemy, but at these strange words they shrank away with gloomy faces, and I could hear muttered curses, and the words witch and she-devil. That put an end to the good humor that for the first time in days seemed to pervade the becalmed vessel. Uncle John made one more torpeter with the little powder that remained in the open can. The other he carried to his cabin. When I left the deck, just before the beginning of this writing, the sailors were huddled together forward and eagerly talking, but very quietly. The sea was like a glass in which the stars of this strange southern sky were all mirrored. Again, impelled by I know not what power, I come to my journal. For what strange eyes am I writing these words? I doubt whether I shall have strength to put down the record that I feel ought to be put down. Perhaps the power that impels me to write at all will give me the needed strength. I have lost the reckoning of the days, but that matters not. After writing the words with which my last entry closed, I went to my little cabin and was soon asleep. I was awakened by stealthy feet without my door, followed by sounds of a struggle on deck, two or three pistol shots, curses and groans and the trampling of feet. I jumped from my bunk, threw on some clothing, and hurried out. The large cabin was in total darkness. I rushed to the companionway. As I stepped upon the deck I saw before me a struggling throng, and then there was a crash, and I knew no more for a time. I know now that I was struck on the head by one of the crew who had been watching for me. 
When I recovered consciousness I was lying bound hand and foot on the deck. It was early daylight. I struggled to rise but could not stir. I saw the crew carrying bags and casks and clothing and lowering them over the side. Two or three forms lay on the deck, but I could not see who or what they were. I recognized the boatswain's voice giving orders. He asked if there was water enough and food, if the log and chronometer and compasses had been stowed away. It was all confusion, and my brain seemed on fire, but I knew that the crew were preparing to quit the ship. Where was Uncle John? Where was Captain Raymond? And where was Helen? At this I again struggled and strove to rise, and the noise I made attracted the boatswain and he came to me. You're fast enough, my lad, said he, smiling grimly. Best lie quiet and listen. The lads have had enough of this bedeviled ship and the witch that has bedeviled her. So we're going to ship our cable and put off. You seem so fond of the witch that we'll leave you with her. She'll care for thee, never fear. And he turned on his heel. I tried to speak, but must have fainted with the effort. When I again became conscious, I was still lying on the deck, but my bonds had been cut, and I managed to stagger to my feet. I looked all around. Not a living being could I see. Just then the sun came up, and as his glowing disk showed above the quiet water, I caught, far away in the south, a faint sparkle, and then saw two small dark spots that before my straining gaze disappeared. I doubt not that what I saw were the boats containing the crew of the albatross. I turned and looked around the deck. The forms that I had seen were no longer visible, but just aft of the wheel was a piece of canvas covering something. I walked over feebly, for the blow that I had received had shaken me badly, and lifted the canvas. There lay the dead bodies of my dear uncle and Captain Raymond and big first mate Robinson. Like a man in a dream I covered them again, and again looked about the deck. Where was Helen? Not on the deck. Had the villains taken her with them? I made my feeble way below and went to Helen's cabin. The door was shut. I tried to open it. It was locked. I examined the lock. The key was in it, and on the outside. They had locked her in. I cautiously turned the key, opened the door, and entered. There lay Helen, her dark hair streaming back over the pillow. One round cheek rested softly on her brown, dimpled hand, the other bore a lovely flush. The half-parted lips were like crimson rosebuds, and over her bosom her white night-robe rose and fell gently. She was asleep. As I stood there she opened her eyes. When she saw me she smiled happily and said in a sweet, sleepy voice, is it time to get up, Arthur? Why, how pale you look! Are you ill? And she rose on one arm, and the smile faded away. Yes, Helen, I said as steadily as I could. It's time to get up. Come into the cabin as quickly as you can. I am not at all well. And I left the little cabin, still like a man in a dream. Helen soon joined me. I asked her if she had slept well. She had. Had she heard no unusual noises in the night? No, she had not awakened once. So it was. Like a tired, healthy child, Helen had slept through all that awful tragedy. I shan't attempt to try and tell of the task I had in making her comprehend our awful situation. She did not comprehend it, 
She wept bitterly when I told her of the three dead bodies on the deck. She moaned over my poor, bruised head, and with gentle hands bathed and bound it up. Then she said that she was hungry. We found the lockers in great confusion, but the crew had left food enough of one sort or another to satisfy our immediate needs. There was an awful task before us, and I explained it to Helen. We must consign those dead bodies to the sea. She shuddered at the thought, but, like an obedient child, tried to help me. How I managed to encase those silent forms in canvas I hardly know, but I did, and got them to the side of the ship. Then I got my prayer book and read the blessed burial service, while Helen looked on in troubled wonder. Then came the hardest task of all, but it was done, and the bodies, one after the other, fell with a great splash into the still sea. I had thought to bind heavy weights to the feet, and they sank at once, and Helen and I were left quite alone. I am writing this with great difficulty, for we are dying, dying of thirst. Why I write I do not know. There is no water on board. The sailors, after filling their casks from the great casks in the hold, left the water running. When we sought to draw there was not a drop left. There is a change coming over Helen. She sometimes looks at me strangely. She seems almost shy. I wonder what it is. Is memory coming back? Or has she learned that she is a woman and I a man? But she is not for me. There is John Bruce, and I vowed to take her safely to him, and I shall. Mother, good. I can't write more. I see that the end is... End of section 20